It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka. Today is Tuesday, November 21st, 2023. I'm Brooke Schaefer with Raven News. The Sitka Tribe of Alaska held its annual government elections last week. Three council members were re-elected to their seats, and one newcomer is taking the fourth open seat on the council this fall. Tribal council members Martha Moses, Lisa Way, and Frederick Olson Jr. were re-elected with 54, 42, and 40 votes, respectively. Rhonda Stiles won 48 votes, earning her a seat on the council. 32 votes went to Robert Sam, along with nine write-in candidates who received a total of 11 votes. A press release from STA extended thanks to Sam for his service on the council. Council members will serve two-year terms. They will be sworn into office in early December. An emergency subsistence hunt held in cake at the start of the COVID pandemic has been found to be lawful over the objections of the state. The ruling by the United States District Court of Alaska earlier this month further strengthens the federal government's position in subsistence management in Alaska. KCAW's Robert Woolsey reports. The hunt was authorized by the Federal Subsistence Board and managed by the Forest Service, Petersburg Ranger District, after a request from the tribal government of Cake. The OVK, or Organized Village of Cake, petitioned the Federal Subsistence Board in 2020, shortly after nationwide lockdowns and supply chain disruptions threatened the food supply to the 500 residents of the community located on Kupranoff Island, about 50 miles east of Sitka. Hunters designated by OVK were allowed to take two bull moose and five male Sitka black-tailed deer per month outside of the state-regulated seasons for these animals. Meat from the harvest was distributed to 135 households in Cake. The hunt prompted a swift legal response from the state, essentially a new challenge to a three-decade-old conflict in Alaska— the discrepancy between the 1980 Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, or ANILCA, which in the simplest terms grants a rural subsistence priority, and the Alaska Constitution, which does not. The November 3rd ruling by U.S. District Court Judge Sharon Gleason reaffirmed that when push comes to shove, federal laws supersede state laws in matters of subsistence. In its initial lawsuit against the cake hunt, the state argued that nowhere in ANILCA is there language authorizing emergency subsistence hunts and that the Federal Subsistence Board lacked the authority to create them. The state took the issue as far as the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals this past March and even claimed victory when the justices rejected the United States' claim that the question was moot and remanded the matter to the Alaska District Court for review. U.S. District Court Judge Sharon Gleason, however, concluded that ANILCA gave the U.S. Secretary of Interior broad discretionary power to authorize emergency hunts, even though they're not strictly spelled out. She wrote, The court finds that the Secretary's regulation, which authorizes the Federal Subsistence Board to open public lands for the taking of fish and wildlife for public safety reasons, is valid as applied to the emergency hunt that the board authorized for cake. And Judge Gleason lets the state know they should have seen it coming. Citing one of the first major subsistence cases following ANILCA, Katie John, Gleason wrote, Congress was clear in ANILCA's text that enforcement of the subsistence priority would entail altering the traditional balance of power between the state of Alaska and the federal government.
The Tenneke Springs City Council voted this month to formally oppose a bill that would allocate some federal forest land to landless tribes in Southeast. The so-called landless bill would create new corporations and transfer federal land to Alaska Natives in Ketchikan, Wrangell, Petersburg, Haines, and Tenneke Springs. KCAW's Meredith Reddick reports. In a special council meeting, Tenneke residents expressed concerns around conservation and public access to land that would be privatized and potentially developed if the bill passes. Community member Molly Kemp said she was frustrated that the bill does not include proposed protections for other federal lands near Tenneke, which residents had pushed for. What's on the table is the reality that no one is given an inch on what Tenneke has asked for. And this is, you're talking about this bill passing in its current condition, the exact same thing we've been opposing for decades. Others were concerned about the lack of clarity around the potential corporation's shareholders. Councilmember Craig Mapes wondered who the shareholders of a corporation in Tenneke would be. Tenneke has the smallest Alaska Native population out of the five communities. You know, it looks like a two-family two corporation. Tenneke is not the first community to raise questions about the bill. Petersburg has also been divided over the issue with questions about land access and conservation. Councilmember Rudy Zeal said regardless of amendments, he doesn't support privatizing public lands. I mean, I personally will never support taking public lands and giving them to a corporation. I mean, I wouldn't do it for for BP, I wouldn't do it for Weyerhaeuser, I wouldn't do it for Greenpeace. Regardless of, of what the end results are, I think that, that uh, public land should remain public. The final resolution states that the city of Tenneke Springs is, quote, adamantly opposed to the bill and that they will, quote, work diligently to see that it is not passed until adequate conservation measures are included. The resolution was unanimously approved. In Sitka, I'm Meredith Reddick. The Juneau School District ended the last fiscal year with an almost $2 million deficit in its operating fund. That's according to an audit presented to the school board on Tuesday. Now, lower-than-expected enrollment this fall has grown that deficit to nearly $3 million. As KTOO's Katie Anastas reports, district leaders will look for ways to address the shortfall in the coming weeks. Auditors say the district violated city and school board policies by spending more money than the board had budgeted, without getting approval from the school board and city. Karen Tarver, a partner with local auditing firm LG Rayfeld, spoke at the school board meeting. You spent more than the board had approved and more than CBJ had approved, so that's where the noncompliance came into place. Administrative Services Director Cassie Olin said the district faced unexpected costs at the end of the year including some related to its contract with the teachers' union. She said the district is providing more frequent financial reports to the school board. And additionally, the district has recently transitioned to new financial software for budgeting expenditures and revenue tracking. The audit also noted issues with implementing new accounting standards, maintenance of student records, and Medicaid billing. Meanwhile, the number of students in the district continues to shrink, causing the operating fund deficit to grow even more. The district projected that more than 4,200 students would be enrolled this year. But after schools counted throughout October, the average daily number of students the district submitted to the state was 4,114. State funding for the district is based on enrollment, 
and that gap equals about a $1 million loss in projected revenue. That means the board will be facing a $3 million operating fund deficit when it starts working on budget revisions for this fiscal year. The board's next meeting is December 12th. In Juneau, I'm Katie Anastas. Museums Alaska, a statewide museum association, announced last week that it is awarding 12 grants across the state, including Sitka's Sheldon Jackson Museum. Two of Ketchikan's museums will also be getting some of the funding. KRBD's Jack Darrell talked to a local museum director to find out why grants like these can make a big difference. Museums Alaska awards grants to museums across the state twice a year from funding set aside by the Rasmussen Foundation, another statewide nonprofit. In this latest round, over $150,000 will be split across a dozen museums. Ketchikan Museums received three grants, totaling almost $33,000. That's the most of any of the awarded organizations. Anita Maxwell is the director of Ketchikan Museums, which oversees the Tongass Historical Museum and Totem Heritage Center. She says these types of grants allow them to do things they'd never be able to do in their normal operations budget. We really depend on these kinds of um, pieces because it's not something that we can do within our regular operational grant. So one grant that we received was a collections management grant. And as the name implies, it is to help us manage our collection. Maxwell says the Totem Heritage Center used to have classes in the traditional art of engraving through the Native Studies program, but they haven't been able to offer them in recent years. The grant will allow them to purchase two jewelry pieces from Norman Jackson, a master Klingit carver born and raised in Ketchikan. Maxwell says the largest grant, which is $20,000, will go towards buying two new custom textile cabinets. I know that probably doesn't sound exciting to anyone but us, but two textile cabinets will be a huge help for us because obviously we have um, a lot of uh, regalia. We have that kind of thing that we really want to make sure we're protecting to the best of our ability. The rest of the money will go towards buying a vest called Daklawedi from Klingit fur artist Christy Ruby, her first piece to be added to the museum. The vest features fur from sea otters that were hunted around Ketchikan. Other recipients of the grants are museums in Sitka, Bristol Bay, Kodiak, Juneau, Fairbanks, and Anchorage. In Ketchikan, I'm Jack Darrell. The storm currently affecting the majority of southeast Alaska has caused a slew of landslides across the Ketchikan Gateway Borough and Prince of Wales Island. Parts of North Tongass Highway in Ketchikan were closed Monday due to a landslide in the Ward Cove area. Residents were without power for a couple of hours while Ketchikan Public Utilities assessed the damage. Power has since been restored. Alaska Power and Telephone, a utility provider serving Prince of Wales Island, has reported landslides in Heidelberg, Black Bear Lake, and between Craig in Klawak. A road was also washed out in Kaufman Cove. Meanwhile, in Sitka, the storm caused at least one power outage Monday, when shortly after 11 a.m., a tree took out a power line along Sawmill Creek Road. Power to the affected homes was restored within about an hour. I'm Brooke Schaefer, and this has been Raven News.